All right. Does God have a plan for the workplace? And if so, what is it? That's what we're going to be talking about today. Now, I have a degree in theology, but more than that, I've had a lot of different jobs in my life. And in each of those jobs, I've actually been trying to figure out this issue, this problem of faith and work integration, because it can be a challenge. And I've tried to look at it from both the perspective of theology and experiencing work and learning from the best thinkers on work, actually. Now, my most recent job was manager of strategy at Bed Bath & Beyond, and I really, really liked that job. And then, if you've seen the news, we went out of business. Too bad. Could biblical principles have helped prevent that? Oh, maybe. Before that, I was director of career development at the King's College here in New York City. Wonderful place, and I loved that job, and I learned all about careers in that job, which really fit into my project of wanting to understand faith and work integration. Well, if you followed King's College at all, you realize they are not offering classes in the fall and will probably, in fact, go out of business. I promise there is not a pattern here. Prior to that, at the King's College, I ran my own company for a while. I still have that on the side. And I worked at a major ministry called Desiring God, as I mentioned, which is still operating. And I was director of digital there, along with lots of other roles that I had. And again, that was a job that I really, really enjoyed I've also had other jobs, jobs that I um, did not enjoy so much. I think my worst job was cooking fries at Hardee's in college. And I remember the very first day I got there and the manager said, okay, I want you to sit here in front of the fry machine. And I had to pour the fries into the basket and then drop them in the oil and then wait for three minutes until... (laughs) until that alarm went off. And I tell you, that was boring. Probably the most most bored I've ever been because I had to wait three minutes, change the fries, put them back in. Well, fortunately, soon after that, I was promoted to cook. So I was making burgers for people. And the first day, you know, obviously I wanted to do a good job. And if you're cooking for people, you got to wash your hands. You got to get those hands clean. So I went to the sink in the kitchen to wash my hands, and there was no soap in there. So then I went to the restroom to wash my hands there. I touched the doorknob, of course, to open the door and get in there. There's no soap in there either. But now it's worse because my hands were even more dirty than before because they touched the doorknob. Well, I had to get to work. I had to get back to the kitchen And I had to go back to work without washing my hands. So they didn't exactly get me set up. And maybe there was some way I could have figured that out, but they did not exactly set me up for success. So don't do that. And I told that story once on a podcast and they said they might have to delete the mention of Hardee's from the podcast. (laughs) Some bad branding. Um, I also had a job cleaning showers at a truck stop and I set the record for most showers cleaned in a day, mostly because I didn't like it and I wanted to get it done as quickly as possible. So I also had lots of other jobs, some of which I enjoyed and some of which I struggled to find enjoyment in, to meaning, and I struggled to be engaged. Then this issue especially presented itself to me when I started to write my book, on faith and work. It's a book on faith-based productivity. It's called What's Best Next? How the Gospel Transforms the Way You Get Things Done. And in this book, I was like, I'm really, I'm going to go deep on this, figure this out, and give people practical tools to increase their productivity. But working, I was working at Desiring God, the ministry at the time, at least when I started this, and I started getting pushback from people. Um, 
kind of saying this wasn't exactly spiritual to be thinking about secular work and giving people instruction on how to do that well. Of course, the tactics would apply to ministry work as well. But there was this kind of two-tier notion of Christianity that ministry in the church is more important than ministry out in the secular world. Kind of like a caste system, actually, if you if you think of it very careful, very, very closely, this notion that what you're doing in the business world or arts or education or whatever is merely supporting activity and not meaningful and first rate in itself. And that got me thinking hard about this issue of faith and work integration, especially because honestly, if something is not of primary importance, why would we do it? I don't really want to be doing it. Of course, we do have to do supporting activities in every area of life. And in the business, you have primary activities and support activities. But even those are meaningful in supporting the mission. But if this creation is something that's just going to burn and go away, and we're just, and, and really our work is only of temporary significance, it doesn't have eternal meaning. So I really wanted to figure this out because most Christians actually work in the so-called secular arena, not in church jobs. So this is very important. We really have to understand this. So just as I was struggling with this question of what is, is there eternal meaning in work and what is, I imagine many of you have struggled with that question as well. I imagine you've wondered, does my work really matter to God? What do I do when I find my work is not giving me meaning and seems like drudgery? And if I work in the so-called secular world, am I just a second-rate Christian? This is the question of faith and work integration. It is the issue of whether our work connects to our faith, whether our work connects to God's work, and if so, how? This question of how the Bible is supposed to shape our work is just as important as the question of meaning. They involve one another. And the fact is there are a lot of ministries out there that are doing a great job showing us that our work matters, but they are not giving us very much deep or interesting instruction on the question of how the Bible is supposed to shape our work. The exact things we do and how we do them. They often give the impression that the way faith informs our work is just through ethics, what not to do, or evangelism. Use your work as a platform to preach the gospel to people. And I feel like that's very inadequate, especially this issue of ethics. As important as it is, I think ethics is, is very important. But a lot of times ethics is reduced to actually self-protection. Protect yourself from the law by being honest in your financial statements. Protect yourself from lawsuits, from getting in trouble. And that's a very reduced notion of what God requires of us. It's, it's very important, but there's so much more that he requires of us. And if we say faith only informs our ethics, we are just really relegating it to a corner and it's not affecting the substance and life of our work. So that's not enough. And neither is evangelism as important as that is. We need to understand how the work itself matters. And the good news is that the Bible does say more than just that our work matters. It gives us instructions on how to go about our work, not just in the ethical realm, but wisdom for how to do our work well and with excellence. In fact, it gives us an entire philosophy of management and an entire philosophy of work. It's quite fascinating. And it's here, much of it, in this text that we looked at. And I think what we will see as we look at it is that there is, in fact, a revolutionary connection between Christianity and the workplace. It's revolutionary. But we've got to look carefully at this text, because if we just look at it superficially and on the surface, it might not sound like that at first. Now, a quick word, okay, on this text, 
it's originally written to slaves and masters. That's the context. And it's, it's kind of unfortunate that during the era of slavery here in the U.S., sometimes masters would give, the, give Bibles to their slaves and point them to this passage as a way of saying, here, do what we say. Big misunderstanding. Among other things, that was a different kind, that was a different kind of slavery, which, which the Bible is, is very much opposed to. The Bible opposes kidnapping, and in opposing kidnapping, it is opposing slavery. And then in the Old Testament, the major event of the Old Testament is the exodus out of Egypt. What was that an exodus out of? Out of slavery. That is a condemnation of slavery. So it's a complete misreading of this passage. And even someone like Bill Maher says, he says, no one in the ancient world even thought to think slavery was wrong. Guess what? That's wrong. The Bible opposed it from the start, as we've just seen. Aristotle even questioned it a little bit. He's actually famous for, you know, suggesting, uh, for working it into his whole, whole framework, not a race-based slavery. But, but he did mention that there are some people, even in his day, that questioned the justice of slavery. So anyway, this text is not an affirmation of slavery, especially the kind of slavery we had in America. Um, but what Paul is doing is he's giving instructions to people who might have been in slavery for whatever reason. It could have been debt slavery. It could have been through being a prisoner of war, um, other stuff. And he's just saying, you're in this situation and he's assuming it's not possible to change it. Here's how to do it. Here's, here's how to handle that. So it's not, it's not a justification of the status quo. Now, there are things we can learn from it though, nonetheless, even when we're not in a situation of slavery because there are broader principles operating here. The principles of how to do work in this particular context, it was how to do the work um, in a master-slave relationship, but there are broader principles here. And also, Paul indicates that this is intended to give instructions to those who are free, those who are not slaves, because at the end, he says, whether slave or free, the Lord will repay you for the good that you do. So this does, according to Paul, have broader implications. And what we're going to be doing is applying this, taking the principles and applying them by analogy to employer-employee relationships. That's what we're going to be doing. So, but of course, it is important to understand the text itself in its own context and who it's addressed to, and then be able to make application from that, from the broader principles by analogy in this case. And that's what we're going to be doing. Okay, so I've said... In this passage, we, we have a revolutionary concept of faith and work integration. And if I were to say to myself, how do we sum up this guidance that the scriptures give us? I'd put it like this. God calls us to imitate him in our work. And we imitate him by loving others in the very act of work. In this way, we will integrate our faith and work and advance his purposes in the world. So loving others in our work. Now, is that surprising? And my first reaction to that, I have a couple reactions to that as I think about it. My first was like, that seems vague. I don't even know what that means. And if I don't know what it means, it doesn't seem very revolutionary. Well, we're going to look at what it means. We're going to make it so it's not vague. And you're going to see it's, it's not trite. And then kind of the second thing I think about is I've encountered people that say they're doing their work in love. And a lot of times their work is not very good at all. I, I bought this box of cereal a few years ago and it said made in love. Man, that was terrible cereal. Some of the worst cereal I've ever had. Or if I go to a bakery and they have a sign saying baked in love, I'm wondering, did you wash your hands? I'm just... I'm just thinking, is doing this in love really just an excuse for doing it because I love doing it rather than loving the customer and wanting to serve them? And what this passage is talking about is loving the customer, loving your employer, employers loving their employees. And we're going to see that. And that becomes very profound 
and changes things. Some people worry that if we try to apply the Bible to the workplace in detail, that we're going to screw it up, that we're going to screw up the Bible and we're going to screw up the workplace. I mean, and we've seen this done, right? A lot, even like when it comes to science in the Middle Ages, some people tried to say, they, they opposed Galileo and Copernicus saying, no, the, the Bible teaches that the earth is at the center of the universe and so forth. And like, no, no, it's not. And in fact, a lot of the early scientists were Christians and they pointed out, we got to, we got to investigate the world empirically to find out what's going on. And the texts which were brought forward to try to argue that the earth was at the center of the universe, they were not using the text properly. They were not interpreting them correctly. So we do need to be on guard against misusing the Bible in practical affairs and in scientific affairs. So we need to understand it carefully and we need to do a type of thing where we, um, we understand the text and then we look at how that plays out in the world. And if we see problems happening, then we got to ask ourselves, well, did we understand the text right? And then same also though, someone might come up with a theory like Frederick Taylor did, the father of scientific management, and think, um, oh, this is really improving productivity. But we might look at that and we'd be like, wait, hang on, there's problems here. It, uh, uh, people hate it. <laughs> That's what happened with scientific management. And then maybe we need to adjust something. And then management theory did adjust it. So there's an interplay going on, on both sides that has to go on. But I think what we're going to see is that the experience of companies that have followed these principles, most of them without knowing it, shows that they work. And love is actually far more powerful than you would believe in the workplace. Understood rightly, it makes a gigantic difference in the workplace, both for others and for yourselves. And I need my other glasses. Would you be able to... <laughs> Thank you. So I, I was a recipient of some poor work, some glasses, which don't work for mid-range. And uh, the eye doctor did not analyze the situation closely enough. So my glasses work for distance and not mid-range, which is problematic. Okay, that fixes it for me. Um, okay, so to see the revolutionary impact of love in the workplace we are going to look at three things in this text. First, that we are to love others. I'm going to show we really are supposed to do this in the workplace. Second, how we are to love others, what it, what it looks like. And then third, the results of loving others at work. What happens if we do it? Okay, so first, that we are to love others. So that we are to love others, how we are to do it, and what the results are. Okay, so that we are to love others. Four reasons show us that we are to do it. And this is where we're going to start looking at the Bible. First, the wider context of the whole Bible shows this, okay? This is important. Every passage needs to be understood in context, context of the, 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 the sentence, in context of the paragraph, in context of the chapter, in context of the book, in context of the whole Bible. So what's the whole Bible say? Well, we all know, right? Christianity is famous for this. The two great commandments, Jesus told us are love God with your whole heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, everything else depends on those two commandments. And then Paul said, those two commandments sum up the law. He who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. All of our obligations and requirements to God and others can be summed up in love, every single one. So right away, it's got to apply to the workplace. It has to, because Everything is to be done in love. And Paul even says that explicitly in 1 Corinthians 16. Let all that you do be done in love. So how much, that we, how much of what we do is supposed to be done in love? Just at home? Just at church? No, all that you do, even in the workplace, whether the workplace is business, education, nonprofit, government. So everything that we do as a Christian in any area of life is to be an expression of love. Now, this is going to look differently in different contexts. So sphere sovereignty. So there are different particularities for each context, but love is the rule and it's behind everything and it becomes a litmus test. 
including the workplace, as I've said. In fact, the reformers like Martin Luther, the, the great reformer who started the Protestant Re Re um, Reformation, he was big on Christianity and the workplace. And he said, the workplace is one of the chief arenas in which we can love our neighbor. Because what, what are you doing in the workplace? What are workers doing? What are companies doing? They're creating products that meet needs. Work meets needs. That's love. Now, not that everyone is doing that in love, but you can do it in love. And when you actually do it in love, man, you got the best of both worlds. You have good motives coupled with actually bringing about good results for other people. The workplace is one of the most amazing arenas in which we can love people and, and creative and, and vibrant, amazing and large scale ways. Okay, so we just, we know we are to love people at work already because of the broader teaching of the Bible. Okay, second, the context of this passage shows it. Okay, so what I read was the section on employer-employee relations in chapter six. That's how I'm referring to this by analogy because we know it's specifically about masters and slaves, but the broader application of this is to employers and employees, structures of authority in the workplace. And this is part of a larger set of instructions. And it's kind of cool, actually. In chapter five, Paul is actually breaking our life down into a set of categories for us. And that makes it much easier to live life. So this was what we'll call the workplace in the passage we read, chapter six, five through nine. Before that was the family. Husbands, love your wives. And then children, children, obey your parents. So that's the family. And then before that was individual ethics. So you got individual ethics, you got the family, you got society slash the workplace. All of this is flowing out of the broader all-encompassing instructions in chapter five, verses one and two. So take a look at that in your Bible, because here's what it says. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved you and gave himself up for you, a fragrant sacrifice and offering to God. That's the instruction that is over all this other more specific instruction. So these specific instructions of how to operate in the family and in the workplace and in individual ethics are instructions on how to imitate God. So if you operate according to these instructions, you are giving an accurate reflection of God to the world. Now, how do we imitate God? Well, to imitate God means reflecting his attributes, thinking, feeling, and acting in a way that expresses his character, what is true about him. And as we know, what is chief among God's attributes, what is most of all true of God is that he is love. First John, Paul says it, God is love. And then Paul emphasizes that right here. After saying, be imitators of God, he says, and walk in love as Christ loved you. So the chief way we imitate God is by walking in love, by loving others. In other words, this text frames and applies to all of these other instructions that follow, including workplace arrangements and how to do your work. And Paul's main instruction is this, imitate God by loving others. So the context shows we are to do that in our work. It's, it's what Paul is saying. It's what he is teaching. Then fourth, Paul's specific instructions to employees in this passage itself show us that we are to love others at work. And so zooming in on this passage, we see there's two sets of instructions here, an instruction to employees and an instruction to employers managers, owners of the company, even, even if they're stockholders. So let's first look at Paul's instructions to employees. And in order to see love here, we got to define love. And this is where we get more specific and you can see how love is very powerful. So a lot of times we don't define it. We don't, sometimes we don't even know what it is. We say Christianity is all about love. And if someone were to say to us, what is love? We would be at a loss for words. So I wanted to understand what love is. So I've read the major theologians and philosophers, and of course the Bible, 
shows us what it means too. And here's a definition of love in a sentence. Love is an affection for the other person that wills their good. So first note, love is an affection. Some people say love is an act of will. It's not a feeling. It, that's just wrong. To say, I love you, but I don't like you. Nope. Nope. The meaning of love is deep affection. Now, there might be things about the person you don't like, but you can always find something because they are in the image of God. So this, this notion of feelings is indeed central to the concept of love. But feelings are not enough. You will the other person's good. You want what is good for them, and then you take action to make it happen when you're able. And this is why the Bible really emphasizes love takes action. It doesn't just say, we'll be warm and be filled and good luck. If it's able to do something, it does. Okay, so love is a genuine concern for the person. That'd be another way to put it, a genuine concern. To love another person is to want good for them and act to make it happen. So you do the kinds of things that are positive, constructive, and beneficial. So like, if your computer is all beat up and it, it, it's, the, it's fallen off its hinges, it's got dents all over it, no one's gonna say to you, wow, you really love your computer. I can just see by looking at it how much you love it. That's not how we treat things that we love. If we love something, we treat it well. Jonathan Edwards, in he's summing up what all the great theologians have said about love. He says, the main thing in love is goodwill towards others. That's, the, that's what love is. That's the heart of love, goodwill towards others, wanting good for others. Okay, is that in this passage? Well, look, it is. So notice how Paul says to slaves, rendering service with a good will. So did, did you catch that? So if you look at the passage and look at it closely, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Etc. doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. So when Paul says render service, and he's conceiving of work as service here, that's kind of cool and interesting. Render service with a good will. When he says render it with good will, he's saying do it with love. Do your work with love from a heart of love, which means care. Care about your employer, so care about your boss. Want what is good for your boss. And as we'll see later, managers should want what is good for their people. Want what is good for the customer. And if you want what is good for someone, you take care. You're, you give attention to detail so that their, their glasses work and, and things like that. So employees are to do their work out of a genuine desire to benefit their manager and the owner of the company and the customer. It's right there. And then notice Paul also says, doing the will of God from the heart. That's more love. You're doing it with your whole heart. There's a vibrancy and a zeal in doing your work. And this is what the commentators point out, like have zeal in doing your work. It's like our society talks a lot about being passionate about your work. And that actually is biblical. Be passionate about your work. Do it from the heart. Do it with your whole heart. Do it with excellence. Now, the ultimate passion is in service, seeing your work as a mission of service to others. But it is good to be passionate about the work itself and find things that are passionate, that you are passionate about in your work. And then that, of course, implies excellence. If you are doing something with your whole heart, you are doing it with excellence, a ministry of excellence. And Paul says, do this even when their eye is not upon you. So don't be, don't engage in eye service and don't be a people pleaser. So he's saying, don't just do good work when they're watching you. Do it even when they're not watching you and even when they won't even realize it and won't even acknowledge it or reward it. So do your work sincerely genuinely care. Don't be out just for your own advancement and to look good, 
Be sincere in your work. Now, notice there is also love towards God here and even towards ourselves. Isn't this interesting? Now, I'm focusing on love for others, but Paul says we are to do our work as servants of Christ and as to the Lord and not to man. So ultimately, we are to do our work as an offering to Christ, to please him. And of course, that's worship. And so we see the biblical theme here that worship is all of life, not just Sunday services. So all of life can be done as an act of worship, as an offering to Christ, done out of love for him and offered to him. And then second, there is love towards yourself here. Because Paul says, Operate in this way, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. So I know a lot of us, like we might be doing work and our manager doesn't appreciate it, doesn't notice, doesn't care, doesn't acknowledge it. We don't get the promotion we ought to get. We don't get the recognition we ought to get because our work's being ignored or not noticed and other people take credit. And Paul's saying that happens, that happens you're not always going to get noticed and get the recognition you ought to have. But Jesus notices everything. Nothing escapes his eye. So every good thing you do will be rewarded by him, even when your employer does not notice it. This is a wonderful thing because it means there is something for us. Love doesn't mean you don't care about your own interests at all. It means a union of interests with others. So you do care. This is not a lose-win mentality. I'll talk about this in a little bit. It is a win-win mentality. So do your work and then confidence that it will be rewarded by Christ. And that can give great meaning to us. Okay, now Paul's instructions to managers. That's the second set of instructions here. Masters, owners. Love is here as well. And this is where the passage gets especially interesting because many people look at this passage and they think it's all about hierarchy and authority structures. And this is what some of the slave owners did um, in the earlier era. They're like, see, slaves obey your masters. Here you go, do what we say. And they were inconsiderate to their slaves. And they said, look, you got to do what we say. Some people say, oh, but some slave owners were kind as if that makes it okay. Okay. Owning slaves is itself unkind. That's the problem. It's not okay if you're nice to your slave. You should not have slaves at all. Okay, so these slave owners, by the way, at least actually many people became Christians because of the Bibles that were given to them out of terrible motives, but they read more of the Bible and they believed and God was with them and gave them comfort. And so anyway, this, if we look closely at this, this is, this is not a justification of unjust authority structures. This is not saying all the power is in the people with a higher rank and more resources and just support that. It's not, it's not saying that. And here's how we know this. And in the workplace, it means this is, this is undermining a command and control approach, an authoritarian approach to management. Okay, so let's let's take a closer look. Okay, so look at the passage because we got to remember what Paul said to the employees. He said, obey your earthly masters and do it genuinely as you would Christ and render that with a goodwill from love. So obey your masters. That's what Paul said to slaves. Now, what does he say to the masters? He turns to them. Does he say, masters, keep your slaves under control, make sure they do what you want them to do, be authoritarian, strict, and harsh? No, here's what he says. Masters, do the same to them. Do the same to them. This is something that has just been greatly overlooked, not even not talked about much. What's that mean? Do the same to them. So like Paul's saying, the things I just commanded to slaves, masters, you do those as well. So doing the same to them would mean masters are to obey their employees and to do so genuinely as they would Christ from the heart. 
and render this service with a good will as to the Lord. Huh, is that going to work? Masters obeying slaves, managers obeying employees. How is that even a workplace? How is that even going to work? What's going on? Can Paul literally mean that? Well, my response here is, if you think about it, isn't this servant leadership, which is a major trend in modern management and modern leadership and has been for many decades? And I think we can see this more clearly and get at what Paul is saying by comparing his command here to two other major passages in the New Testament on leadership. So the first is Matthew 20, 25 through 28. And here it says, Jesus called them and said to them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So now recall the wider context of the Ephesians is about, it's a command to imitate God, right? How does God lead and manage? Well, he tells us right here, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. That sounds a lot like masters do the same to them. Masters obey your employees. Jesus is a servant leader. He does indeed have authority, all authority, all authority but he is not authoritarian. He says, here's the meaning. Use your authority not in your own interests, but in the interests of those you lead. This is a type of obedience. He says that sometimes the leader is going to feel like the slave. That, that is a relationship of a type of obedience, but here would be a way to put it in, in terms that I think makes sense, and it's what the scriptures are getting at. The leader obeys the follower by learning what they need and doing that. It doesn't mean the leader stops being the leader, and as we'll see, it doesn't mean the leader doesn't have his own legitimate agenda, but it means the leader has to consider the needs of the followers, even to the point of sacrificing some of his or her own interests and then the overall agenda also has to be for the good of the employees, the followers, not the leader personally. The leader is to be first in service, letting what they do be greatly impacted by the needs of the followers. I think that's why Jesus said the leader must become as the slave, meaning a lot of what you do is going to have to be dictated by the needs of the followers. And that's the meaning of leadership. You're, you're first not in getting your way. You're first in service. Second passage, this is from Paul, Philippians 2, um, 3 through 9. Beautiful passage. It sums it up. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So there it is, really. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Therefore, God highly exalted him. Okay, so Jesus, Jesus is the ultimate master, manager, owner, employer, Lord of all, and he leads by serving, by serving. That is, by discovering what we need and then meeting those needs, even at cost to himself. And of course, what we needed most of all was forgiveness, forgiveness, so we could have a relationship with him and with his father through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus did what it took to do that. So Jesus was the ultimate servant leader. 
And he is to be our model as well. For Paul says, we are to have this same mindset in ourselves. He says it explicitly, have this mindset in yourselves. We are to imitate the incarnation. Okay, but really, even in our work, is that going to work? So I asked a student when I was at King's College, does Jesus have a job? Does Jesus have a job? And he said, he was a carpenter before he had his itinerant ministry preaching. That's true. But he's got a job now. What is his job? King of the universe. That's a job. (laughs) That's his job. How does he go about his job? Servant leadership. That's what we just saw in this text. If that's how Jesus does his job, isn't that how we should do our job? Yes. Yes, it is. And it's the meaning of love. I mean, this is the meaning of love, to act in the interests of others, right? That's what we saw. Goodwill towards others. Want what is good for them and take action to do it. Okay, so how does this work? How does this work? Does this mean employees should run the show? There's no leadership. The leadership can't give advice, teaching. When I ran the website at Desiring God, I created a whole list of design, usability and design principles that governed how we were to build that site. You know, every link needed to be the same color. If something was a link, it needed to have that color to show as a link and all this other software information architectures, a whole bunch of principles you need to follow to make a website well. Does this mean I should have just <laughs> let my employees do whatever they want and have no standards? No, that's not what it's talking about. And we're going to see this now that we get into how we are to love others. How? And this will be much shorter here. And I'm going to, I'm going to come back to managers because first we got to look at employees, how employees are to do it. How do you practically do this love in the workplace? In particular, how are employees to love their manager? Okay, first do what they say. Okay, I didn't come to the text wanting that to be one of the main points because I know it's just so abused and it seems so basic too, not very interesting. But that's what Paul says, slaves, employees, obey your masters. But if you think about it, this is very profound and very important. Isn't this the basis of all work, of all value? The best employees are the ones that are doing what their managers want. I mean, unless it's a totally incompetent manager. What this is saying is, let's translate it in different words. Do good work. And what equals good work in an employment context is what your manager wants. In other words, learn the needs of your manager and do those. It's just like with a customer relationship. What defines value to the customer is what the customer wants, not what you want to give them. I could, I could spend years and years building some product and saying, here, customers, I love you. Here you go. And if nobody wants it, I have not created value. So this is very profound, actually. At the heart of creating value is knowing what the customer wants, You need to learn that and provide it. And in the workplace, one of your customers, of course, is the main customer, the end customer, but another customer is your manager. And also your coworkers are another type of customer. Find out what your boss wants and do it. And he or she is the one who knows what they want. (laughs) So how do you know what they want? Well, what they tell you. And also asking intelligent questions to find out and dig deeper. This, so this is very profound. It's not a passive wait until told approach to work. It's if they ask you something specifically, do it. And then also find out more broadly what they want, what matters to them and do that and do it with excellence. These are the best employees, those who solve the problems for their employer with speed and excellence and doing this with utilizing the best and latest skills of their profession. These are amazing employees. Second, treat them as important. That is, show respect. And this is right here in the text. 
Paul says, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. So fear and trembling, that's respect. I think the ultimate reference there is towards God, but it also applies to the earthly master as well. Show respect. I think this is amazing. So the, the founders of HP, Hewlett and Packard, they are, t- I love business philosophy. Business philosophy is a thing. I was a philosophy major in college and I was like, man, it's gonna be hard to get any business job because philosophy major seems very irrelevant. There is a thing called business philosophy. And actually every company has it. When they are expressing their purpose and values, that's business philosophy. And David Packard wrote a book like called The HP Way, and he articulated the philosophy um, at HP. And then likewise, um, IBM, um, the second president, son of the founder, also wrote a book on the business philosophy of IBM called A Business and Its Beliefs. And in both of those, a central tenet of their philosophy is respect for the individual, And all their amazing management practices, because these companies flourished, stemmed from that, respecting the employees. And it's true upwards as well. Employees should respect their managers and the owners and those who run the corporation. Show respect. It's right. People deserve it because they're in the image of God. And guess what? Okay, and this is where modern management thinking starts coming in and helping us to apply these things. So Dale Dale, uh, Carnegie wrote a book called How to Win Friends and Influence People. And a lot of Christians kind of dismiss that book. They're like, well, that, that's man-centered and it sounds um, deceptive, flattery. He's not talking about flattery. He's got, he, he talks in there about this, this is sincere. And his main principle is this. So his main principle is this, um, make the other person feel important. That's how to win friends and influence people. It's how to succeed in the business world. And now someone might take that and do it in their own self-interest and do it inauthentically as flattery. But that would be wrong. And Carnegie itself is against that, himself is against that. But if we look, think of this from a biblical perspective, we realize people are important. People are in the image of God. Everyone is in the image of God. People are important and therefore we ought to treat them as so. If we aren't treating people as important, we are, we are lying in a sense. We are giving an incorrect impression. And it's actually devaluing God since people are in the image of God. And the thing is, when you treat people as important, it tends to have good effects. Carnegie quotes the psychologist, he says, who said, uh, um, the deepest need of every person is to feel important. And we could take that in a vain sense, but we don't have to. If people are important, they ought to feel important. And we can help them in that. So make your boss feel important. And in my observation, any employee who makes their boss feel important has done well and seen promotions and other such things. Maybe it doesn't always happen. But Paul himself, again, let me emphasize, I'm not saying do this as people pleasers, surface, flattery. No, no, I'm saying mean it because they are important. And, and, And that's what Paul says, not as eye service, not as people pleasers. And then third, be friendly. I, I, this is not trite. This is not simple because so many people are not friendly. I've worked in places where like, they're like rude. In the name of Jesus, it's like the worst. <laughs> the scriptures all over command us to be gentle, kind-hearted, tender-hearted, and love is not rude. We are to be friendly. So the manner in which we do things is to be positive and uplifting and encouraging. And this also is where another aspect of modern management theory can help because there's a lot of research now on emotional intelligence and social intelligence. And an argument, a good argument has been made that social intelligence matters more than IQ for advancement in the workplace. And a key part of social intelligence is empathy and empathic accuracy, understanding what people are feeling, what they need, and then adapting to that, to that and providing it to them, providing emotional support to people. It's crucial. And this is all very biblical because God created us as whole, whole beings, not just spiritual, not just physical, also emotional. Okay, so that's three ways employees can apply this. There's so many other ways, like we could go on all day. 
But the three big ways are do what your manager says with excellence, treat your manager as important and your coworkers, and be friendly. Those three things, they're going to take you a long ways, and they accurately reflect God. Okay, but managers, how are they to love their employees? And this is another place where modern management theory can help a lot in suggesting practical types of application. The first is this, realize that management by integration works. Okay, so to complete the thought earlier of masters obeying slaves, managers obeying employees, what's going on there is it's, it's not saying set aside all your interests as a manager, just let the employees do whatever and then the company go out of business because nothing is aligned and the website's terrible because no one learned usability principles or things like that. Rather, the big idea is this, act in the interests of your employees as well as your own. It's the integration of interests. And there's a whole modern management theory based on this. Actually, modern management theory itself is based on, it's not just one school of thought now. This is the dominant way of thinking about management. It's the integration of interests. And what that means is um, find ways for employees to accomplish their goals in the act of accomplishing the company's goals. And managers that figure that out have an incredibly motivated workforce with high morale and high employee engagement because then employees feel a sense of ownership. So Laszlo Bach, who was um, head of people operations at Google for many years, wrote a book. And this is, this is the main idea in the book. And he calls it a high freedom approach to management that encourages people to be owners. And he brings in all this evidence. They did their own studies inside Google on the results of different programs and practices so they could see which ones had better results and didn't. And then he brings in academic studies and shows a high freedom approach, which gives uh, people ownership over what they do, has outstanding results. And you can compare that to companies that don't do that. So this is the integration of interest. Or management scholar Jeffrey Pfeffer He's big on this for his whole career. He has a book called The Human Equation, Building Profits by Putting People First. And he has another article called Putting People First for Organizational Success. And he argues that organizations perform better when they treat their members better. Members in these organizations don't treat people as costs to be controlled. They treat them as valuable strategic assets to be carefully nurtured and developed. Chris Argyris is another organizational behavior specialist. Amazing. And he argued throughout his career that managers who treat people positively and as responsible adults achieve higher productivity. And this guy was a scholar. He went into psychology and the structure of the human personality to show this and show what the needs are that people have. Like the needs, they're not just what you're aware of. There are needs built into the human personality to be self-sufficient, to be self-governing, to be responsible. God built us that way. Managers that recognize that and meet those needs, those are the ones that are managing by integration. Okay, so second point. In doing this, this means as a good manager, you adjust to employee needs and preferences, especially by letting them work according to their own style. So Paul talks a lot about like obedience and submission in these chapters. Why is he doing that? And the, some of the traditional thinking has been, well, reinforce the hierarchy. I don't think that's what's going on at all. It's because this is what love does. If love acts in the interests of others, even at cost to itself, that means love adapts to other people's needs. Love accommodates the needs and preference of others. It adjusts to them. It might want to do something a certain way, but if a person needs this other way, it adjusts. As Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 13, love does not insist on its own way. So bring that in and you think, what do my employees need? They do need to be self-directing. God made them that way. So let them be. Now the company does have objectives to meet. How do you, how do you bring that together? Okay, two ways. Allow people as much as possible to participate in setting their own goals. And then second, allow them their own style to accomplish those goals. So, and this 
help solve the manager's dilemma. Marcus Buckingham is big on this. He's got a book called First Break All the Rules. Gallup did a huge study on the greatest managers. So adjust to people. And then third, believe in empowerment. And that's just a form of this. Um, Empowerment means you give employees the ability to make decisions in areas that affect them. Give people as much autonomy and authority over their own work as you can, as much as you can. This isn't to say you always can do that to a great degree. Their circumstances are different. Modern management theory holds a contingency approach uh, and the task relevant maturity in a person is an important factor. Some people in certain contexts need more direction and others less, depending on their maturity in the task. Adjust to that. So what we see here is there is something very different than command and control approach going on here. Not that there's no, never any place for orders, commands. You, you just have to do this. But it's in, within this larger framework of trying to give as much decision, decision-making authority and participation to the employees as possible. That's the larger, larger framework. And everything done for the good of the whole, for everybody, not just your own needs. And this works. The management texts point this out over and over again. One thinker says, empowerment can be profoundly motivating when done properly. And empowerment done well leads to higher levels of employee engagement, which ties to importance. The benefits of empowerment include more satisfaction for the individual and frequently a job done better. Okay, so that's three things the manager can do. Realize that management by integration works. Second, adjust to employee needs and preferences when possible. And third, believe in empowerment. And that brings us to our last point. What will be the results of this if we bring love into the workplace? And the result is this. We will be giving an accurate reflection of God in the workplace. And that's the ultimate goal. That's the ultimate work. And this makes work very exciting because you go to work each day knowing you're not simply creating great products for people, going to meetings, designing marketing plans, whatever, doing those tasks. As great as they are, you're not only doing that. You are also giving people a picture of God in how you do those things and in how well you do them. That's an exciting thing. People can learn more about God through seeing the way that you work. And God himself, of course, is a worker. People can get foretastes of the kingdom by working with Christians who work in this way. And that is in itself valuable, and it also leads some people to want to learn more about God. Now, I'm not, I'm not about like pushing evangelism on people in the workplace. But what often can tend to happen, as Peter says in 1 Peter, is people will start to ask questions when they see the different way that you're working and the positivity that you bring. As a reflection of God, people can wonder, and it can lead to conversations which lead to the gospel. So this does serve the cause of evangelism, even though it is also important in itself. And this is, this, this is, an, exci- this is an astonishing thing, an exciting thing. It, it also has personal results. This brings greater satisfaction to your work, and it has business results. As we saw, companies that operate this way tend to be more effective. Okay, now I mentioned that people get a taste of God if you work in love, in ways like this, and they want to learn more about him. And that leads to just the very final thing here, which is both the power for how to love others in the workplace, what makes it possible to do this, and what is the message you share with people if they want to learn more about God and the God that you are reflecting. And the message, of course, is is simply this. God created all of us, and he created us originally good, And then we fell through sin, and sin separates us from God. And all of us are sinners. All of us have sinned against God. And what that does is 
it breaks our relationship with God. That's why Christianity describes people as fallen, alienated from God, not having a relationship with God by nature. That's the situation we are in. And that needs to be fixed. And how is that fixed? It's not fixed by what we do. We can't fix this problem. We can't make up for our sins. Like if someone commits murder and then they do a lot of philanthropy, they still got to go to jail for the murder. That doesn't undo it. And sin is a serious offense because it's against the greatest of all beings, God. So someone else has to pay the penalty. And that's what Jesus did when he died on the cross. And the reason he had to die rather than do a thousand push-ups is because the penalty of sin is death. And so the only way to pay that penalty is to die. And that's what Jesus did. And then he, he won life and forgiveness through that. And he offers it to all of us. But it's not automatic. We have to accept it. And we accept it by believing, by believing in him. It's not by works. It's not by being a good person. It's by trusting that he paid the penalty for sin and dying and entrusting ourselves to him to forgive our sins and then to be Lord of our life. And then our relationship with God is restored and we have eternal life. And sometimes Christianity, some branches of Christianity have just focused on getting people to heaven, getting people saved. But once we're saved, then God gives us a new mission, a new mandate for life. And it's this, imitate him in the world, reflect him accurately. And by so doing, people will have foretastes of the kingdom and you will have the privilege of participating in that. All right. Thank you very much.